My name is Andrew, and welcome back to the McGill International Review. David Sachs is a Canadian freelance journalist and the author of The Future is Analog, which is a book that argues for a more human approach to many of our endeavors. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it means a lot of things. For example, the way that in-person learning was so much better than Zoom University, or the way that in-person work and office work is so much better than virtual work, stuff like that. So the episode was really interesting because it provided me an avenue to explore many of the different ways that advancements in technology encourage the increased prevalence of digitization, for example, but also some of its downsides and some of the times in which foregoing that might be beneficial for us all. So it was fun to talk about all of those topics, but it was also fun for me personally because I consider David Sachs to be a friend and mentor, someone that I know personally. And he's consistently helped me with my own challenges by constantly pushing me to opt into a more analog and less digitized way of life to (laughs) some success and some uh, not success to my own shame. And I hope that that connection shows in this conversation and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right. So David Sachs, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. Andrew, it's my pleasure to be here. All right. So I'm going to begin with, um, there's a quote that you had on the unmistakable creative podcast that I'd like to quote because I thought it was really interesting. You said, there's a limit to what you can get out of life from a screen. And there's a limit to what you can get out of life by being in one place and having a limited version of the entire human experience. So would you mind elaborating on that? (laughs) Yeah, right off the bat. In a Why limited not? in a limited period of time. Yes. I mean, um, you know, people always ask me in the 30 podcast interviews I've done since this book came out um, five months ago or four months ago, what was the most surprising thing I learned? And I think the most surprising thing I learned in the research was that people, millions and millions of people around the world, including some incredibly smart people working in technology and education and government and you know all sorts of different areas, creativity, thought that we could simply replace our entire lives and the world we live with our bodies in the world with interactions on a screen or through a device. And that would be fine. We would be content with that. And I think we all realized um, three years ago during the sort of early, intense, locky downy days of the pandemic um, that we crave and require so much more than is available through the vast content and platforms and technology that um, can be accessed through, you know, uh, phones and computers. and and th- that's what I mean in that is, is that you know we can replicate, we can create, we can do so much through computers, online, through the internet, and now with the glorious magic of AI, but we still desire vastly more than that um, uh, in every single aspect of our lives. Yeah. Um, so, would you mind going through some of the ways that 
the pandemic may have like negatively affected the human connection? Because I know you have like a very good um, sort of point made about some of the negative uh, consequences of the loss of in-person learning during the pandemic. So why don't we start with that? Sure. I mean, you were in school and, and university um, during the, the early years of the pandemic. You did your your started university uh, online, right? Yep. It was it was not fun, but yeah, that's why yeah. wasn't it fun? Tell me about it, Andrew. The lack of in person connection. Um, so, like, and I think that, like, for me, if I were to say my story, like, sure, there are like negative effects of it, but. Um, I'm I'm so glad that I wasn't like, for example, an elementary school student during the pandemic. And like there are like basic reading, writing, math skills that I would have like lost the retention to have just because like I didn't have a teacher there that would have been like cognizant of like my needs and concerns where like, I guess for me being a young adult during the pandemic, it sucks. And it was terrible, but it was like it was terrible in a way that like you it's like you have a responsibility to deal with. Um, but I think that you could make the argument that we failed a much larger larger swath of people during the well, pandemic. I, I think what it points out is that the experience was negative across the board, right? There was no age group. There was no country. There was no high-end private school or university that you could look at it somewhere in the world. You're like, you know what? Harvard actually did great. Or the students at, you know, the Sorbonne were good. Or the kids in Estonia, where the education system is like the highest ranked in the world, or South Korea, like they were actually great online. No, it sucked for everyone. The, the consequences were negative in terms of the academic performance, as you're talking about, but also, most importantly, the social aspect, right? The social relational aspect, whether that's my child who was in kindergarten at the time, um, or one of my kids, um, uh, and that sort of foundational experience of learning, which is very hands-on and physical and relational in that most recognizable sense of a teacher that will pick a kid up and hug them and 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 trace their fingers over letters to teach them how to do that. Um, but also in the sense of a, a university student first year. I mean, I went to McGill, the university that you're at, which is how I know you. I'm part of the mm -hmm. mentorship program. Um, the experience of not just my first year, but all four years of that university was partly academic. I took a bunch of classes. I skipped a bunch of classes. I learned <laughs> some shit. More importantly, and the most valuable thing were the social aspects of that, right? And the social aspect was sure, going out, partying, hanging out with friends, making dinners, living together with other you know, young adults for the first time. Like That was great. But that was the learning. In the same way that my son in kindergarten and now in first grade, his learning, his education is as much about the friends he's making and how he's interacting with them and how they work together to learn the things that their teacher is teaching them as first grade math, first grade reading, first grade writing, first grade social studies, right? He's he was they were learning about Asia yesterday as a place which he thinks is a big city, a really cool city. Um I tried to explain to him there was a little more than that. But the conversations he's having with his friends about what Asia is and how they want to go on a trip there and then he starts talking about taekwondo and his other friends starts talking about karate and that is the learning, right? And and the most interesting thing is that all learning, all education is based upon relationships, human relationships. And those relationships simply don't happen online. Yeah, they just don't. And like, 
Um, I guess, <laughs> I guess you could say there were certain like uh, political factions, including on the left, that were insufficiently cognizant of that. But that's a tangent, so <laughs> let's just move on. Um, so, could you walk me through some of the like the research that you did throughout the pandemic in terms of like the people that you interviewed and like the lives that you talked to? Where like, um, a did that change some of your opinions? For example, did it solidify any of your opinions on this? And B, did it like give you any more of like a coherent idea about what like ideally these like this world should be for those types of people? Um, well, it's a it's a pretty big sort of question about something that is not doesn't have a finite answer. And I think that's the thing, that's the that's the cognitive trap we got into is that we we're so focused on data and so focused on solutions that could be delivered in one way or another that when the pandemic rolled around, we thought, okay, we have the data, we have the solutions, we have the technology, let's do this. You know, now does this work? We need to know, right? So the the best example for this, the most obvious one, the one that's still up in the air and still being debated with huge consequences for everything is, is work, right? If you're working in a knowledge type role, i.e. your role that your job is mostly on a computer, do you need to be in an office or do you not, right? Um, and every company and every government and every sort of organization is is still wrestling with this three years later, right? You you The work can get done online remotely, but should it be and why? And everybody, whether it's the company, whether it's the individual, whether it's a freelancer, whether it's a small firm, whether it's a huge multinational corporation or a government is looking for that answer. What is it? What is it? What What do people say, right? And I think the thing is people have different opinions, whether it's the experts I talk to, the data I looked at, or the individual experiences of, of people working or you know managing people or who owned uh, companies. Uh, throughout this, that individual experience reflects the individual dynamic nature of the way that humans do something like work and collaborate together. And there's no one answer to that. Um, and that's what makes all this sort of so much more difficult. But we want we want that answer. We want that sort of simple truth. Um, oh yeah, it's it's better in person or it's better online, um, uh, and and it just doesn't work that way. There's there's trade offs and sacrifices that are made in each way. I think early on there was this notion that yeah, this is great. No one's ever going back to the office, and now you know a lot of workers are like, how do I never go back to the office? And and most managers and owners of companies are like, how do we get these people back into an office? And you know it's it's not black and white. Yeah, and as much as we might wish the world to be the case. Um, but do you think you've uh, sort of gathered some intel about like, like, have you started to lean in any like definitive directions about like, these aspects of life might be better online, or these aspects of life might be better in person? I think, um, aside from individual preference and in, in my own life, you know, which everybody has their own things that they prefer to, you know, like shopping online or whatever, right? Like, you know, there's individual preferences or or music or um or certain types of socializing, let's say. I, I think it's, you know, it's very clear. Like there are certain tasks that are very transactional where the benefit of being there in person is not any greater, right? It doesn't, it doesn't make it better to do your taxes in person. Um 
<laughs> or you know go search for directions to somewhere in person or um to go buy concert tickets you know in person like i have to go buy concert tickets for my kids want to go see ed Sheeran. yeah so like the the perfunctory like transactional stuff now now so so you know the perfunctory transactional stuff right so it's like this is ridiculous why would i have to go somewhere to buy concert tickets and when i was in university in my first year at mcgill i i stayed up all night camped out on the sidewalk in a lawn chair uh, to buy tickets to a concert for the Tragically Hip, a sort of famous Canadian band. Um, it was cold. I wasn't wearing the red jacket. I ended up getting sick, but I got the tickets. Anyway, I ended up getting mono because I was so sick um, and couldn't use the tickets. <laughs> it's a whole other story. But um, it was ridiculous. I could have just gone online to Ticketmaster, click, 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 you know, paid the money, paid the fees and whatever. But I, I did that. But, you know, two of the guys who I waited in that line with overnight in front of that record store or whatever it was back in 1999, um, they became friends of mine because we sat there all night and talked and we're, and you know, we had nothing to do. We, we formed that bond. We still talk about it and remember it when we see each other every couple of years. And so that experience still had this value to it, but I think it's, it's, so one is you never sort of know, but the other is we, we do very clearly know that there are some things mostly relational things that deal with sort of human relationships or where human relationships and interactions add value to something such as the creative process that digital interactions, online interactions don't, don't add to. And in many cases they take away from. Yeah. Um, but that sort of um, gets me at something kind of interesting, which is like, obviously you are like planning and researching and writing this book largely during the pandemic. So I remember reading this one review of, from the New York Times where they make the argument that some of your research might have like potentially been undermined by the fact that it was done digitally out of necessity. So there was a quote that sort of struck me, which I'm going to quote right now. Hamstrung by lockdown, Sachs, a journalist and public speaker, had to resort to reporting by Zoom, which he himself argues is like a fast food version of real life. So let's say that, like, for example, you weren't doing research during a global pandemic and but and you had the potential to do a lot more of those sort of activities in person. What would you have done differently when researching your book? Uh, that's, uh, you know, that that is an interesting question. I mean, I don't even know if I would have written the book um, because it was a product of that. But, you know, what I did for the for the other four books I've written was like, I went, I traveled, I got out, I found places and people and organizations and, you know, shops and scenarios that would actually tell the story firsthand, um, which I wasn't really able to do at the time. Cause I was doing this really in the, the heart of everything when everything was still shut down more or less here in Canada. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, you know, going into those schools, going to those places, seeing, the comparison of of what they had they were going through when they were doing it you know locked away and and perhaps you know in hindsight maybe i should have been less worried about you know getting covid or whatever and, and gone out into the world and done those things um but hindsight is you know is 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 well, like it's not hindsight is like i would yeah, argue it's not, it's not 2020 but it's still better than foresight 
It's 2023. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, hindsight about 2020 is 2020. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 um, it's, and I, and I think what a lot of people have been doing, continue to do is some version of what I was doing. Right. Which is like, you know, this is going to be the fastest, easiest way I can do something with sort of the limited resources at my disposal. So how can I, I do this? And you're going to miss stuff. You're going to miss stuff because you're, when you're doing everything online, you're only taking in the information that is presented to you through the screen or through what the computer can do, right? So that information is text, it's video, it's sound, it's a combination of those, uh, it's pictures. But the world that we live in has so much more information around it and about it. Um, uh, once you go beyond the screen, and it's texture, it's smell, it's nuance, it's its body language, um, and all those lead to other sources of information and greater understanding. And I, I think that brings us back to sort of this question about education. It's like, oh well, why couldn't we? Why couldn't we do school online? Why didn't it work? It's like it's the same reason that people couldn't just learn by reading books or encyclopedias. That you know, education has existed for all time, and 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 will continue to exist. People continue to go to schools regardless of how good computers, AI, you know, whatever gets is, is that education, learning, business, creativity, all these things are tied up in the reality of our life in the world, which is a 3D understanding of what our bodies have kind of evolved to do, which is like, go through the world, literally physically move through it and, and, and understand shit. Yeah. And Sometimes, sometimes like the, the process of the way that it benefits us is so subconscious that you don't even realize, um, like how it benefited you unless, until it's gone or sometimes not even that, like sometimes. Or uh, in hindsight. Yeah. Right. In, in hindsight about like, what did you learn in university? You know, and you think back and you're like, well, I took this class. I took this class. I learned about this theory. I learned about this thing, but like, actually what I really learned about was how to make start to make my way in the world as an adult yeah. and independently right how i i came to you know realize about the things i liked and i didn't like and i did that by going and trying them out and being in places with people and seeing who i liked and seeing who i didn't and going into spaces and experiencing those spaces and you know i don't like dance clubs as much as i thought i would but i like this kind of like you know, hip bar. I like this kind of music, even though I thought I'd like this other kind of music, but I had to go see that band. Um, this is a shout out for your favorite band, Snarky <laughs> Puppy, sponsor of the podcast. Yeah. Um, you had to go see them, right? It, it wasn't just something that like you could discover. It couldn't just be fed to you in that way. Um, and so that's the way we exist in the world. And that hasn't changed dramatically, despite the availability of so much information at our fingertips. Yeah. And like, maybe, maybe the problem is like one of quantification where it's like, it's very easy to quantify whether or not like you learned a certain thing. Um, but it's a lot harder to quantify those like intangible aspects, not just friendship, but like the, like the taste and smell of something that, that gets imprinted on your mind in a way that you can't quite quantify, but it's often well, 
Yeah. yeah and, and I mean, look, you're American, right? The, your education system is obsessed with quantifications. The politicians in your country love standardized testing. No one does standardized testing more than the American education system. Well, and I would, I would disagree with that, but keep going. Who, who does? Or the Chinese, I, I suppose, or, yeah, the, keep, well, Korea, or the Koreans. Yeah. Stuff like that, but that's a tangent. Right. So let's keep going. Yeah. Okay. But I mean like certain education systems and, and, and generally the more testing you do, it doesn't result in better, better results. You, you're, you're, you're searching for the sort of data points that could be fed into models that will give you some sort of finite answer. And the answer isn't finite to this. And it's the same with a company. It's like, oh, we, we, we crunch the data. We have all this data and we're going to find the number that's going to give us our answer. But the difference between like bank number one and bank number two, isn't the numbers. It's the ideas, it's the thoughts, it's the interactions, it's the unseen things that led to the decisions that, that got them to invest too much in Silicon Valley Bank or whatever the hell they did, right? Um, exactly, uh, yeah. That's, and that's not quantifiable. I mean, it is maybe in hindsight. Um, oh, we can see why they did this because we went and crunched the data, but it's not, not everything is reduced to a data point. Yeah, and maybe not everything should be reduced to a data point. No, of course not. Yeah. Um, so there's one other aspect of this that I wanted to unpack. Cause like, obviously you, you wrote a lot of this during the the height of the pandemic when like, it was a question of like how, th how remote a lot of, um, like whether or not certain trends that, uh, the pandemic accentuated would end up becoming permanently remote or not. Um, do you think like some of your suggestions might end up, uh, feeling trite in the present day now that a lot of pandemic restrictions have been lifted or do you think like there's still some level of applicability to a lot of those things that you proposed well what do you mean um so like for example you would always give anecdotes of for example uh remote learning compared to um in-person learning or like obviously a uh, remote work i would say is like probably more applicable in terms of like uh the stuff that you mentioned um but do you think uh with with regards to the research that you've done, that there's like a fine line in terms of there are certain aspects of it that you talked about that like are only applicable to the pandemic and like other aspects that are like still worming their way into the present day in terms of uh, like what people want to talk about, like how people want to approach the world now in 2023, more than three years ever since the start of the pandemic. I think... Everything that happened during the pandemic in terms of things moving online were already technologies and trends that were unfolding and that many, you know, creating those technologies or advocating them for them were predicting would be the inevitable future. So, you know, theater, live performances, you know, shifting almost entirely to streaming, um, commerce shifting to online away from brick and mortar stores. Um, you know, so many of our, our civic engagements or, or, or even, you know, religious interactions would be better, you know, more, more, um, in tune for the future, more in tune to the taste of younger generations when they would be digital. This was stuff that people were, had been working on for, I mean, in many cases, decades. And so what the, what the pandemic did was just provide us with this kind of fast forward AB test of like, okay, here it is. Here you go. Here's your virtual church, right? Everybody can go to it because that's the only church that's open unless it's like one of those, you know, 
churches that decided to break rules or whatever, right? So like it, it um, fast-tracked previously existing trends. It fast-tracked previously existing trends. And in early, you know, mid-2020, uh, three years ago, you had all these people being like, see, this is it. There's no going back. There's no going back. And obviously we knew when the thing would end, a lot of it would go back. But there was this question, well, is this this irrevocable change in this direction? And is that for the better? And what we saw with really the exception, the singular exception, I think, of remote working, um, and that was you know largely for economic reasons, uh, but everything else is like revert like retail stores largely back to where they were right? Um, you know, live theater. Like I have friends who are lining up to go see Hamilton and and like, I can't buy concert tickets to Ed Sheeran, uh, which my daughter wants for her birthday. And if I do, I have to pay like $500 a ticket, right? It's like sold out, I- including smaller concerts and, 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 and other shows of things like your beloved snarky puppy. Yes. Um, uh, and, and so, so yeah, some of the stuff is that I'm talking about at the time is telling stories about the reality that I was living at the time, which is, you know, 2020, 2021, the peak of it all, um, that some people might even be like, oh, whatever, we're through that. But listen to what people are talking about now. They're talking about AI. And what are they saying? They're speaking in the same hyperbolic, absolutist, technocentric terms, which is like, all jobs are going to be, you know, taken over by AI. You know, it's, you know, there's, everything is going to be changed. I mean, there's literally like, you know, articles where people are like, this changes everything everything yeah. everything it's like oh it rained this morning will it not rain will ai control the rain I, I you know i heard birds chirping will ai change the birds will you know i still have to clean up my kid when they barf in their bed like they did last weekend do i still is that still going to be a factor you know is that is that going to be changed will the like, bagel taste differently when ai is somehow involved in making bagels in a couple of years, I guess. I don't know. Well, I guess you could say it's similar to the way that like machines mass produce bagels in the present day. Yeah. And you know what? You live in Montreal. How do they make bagels, Andrew? Um, I don't know. What? What the hell is wrong with you? What have you been doing for the past three years? I don't, I, I've, I haven't been looking at how bagels are made. Honestly, yeah. man, I see you are you are truly wasting your education. Yeah, no, stuff. no, there's I, I'm wasting my education in another way, too. In that, like, I remember we had a conversation last week. Uh, we like you, you were like in full analog mode and you basically like told me to like, like go for a walk down like some like mountain or whatever, like not listening to a podcast at all. And I just proceeded to like not go for the walk. Just um, sat in your room on the internet, stressing yourself out about the exam you had the next day. Um, how did it feel? What happened? Um, I I think that that was a bad decision and I should have went for the walk. Um, well, why didn't you? Um, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. So let me tell you how bagels are made in Montreal. Okay, Montreal bagels are renowned around the world as probably the best bagels, um, including New York and and other bagel famous places. And that's because unlike many other places, including New York, the bagels in Montreal are made by hand. They make dough, you know, they make it in a mixer. So it's a machine, I guess, mechanical, but then they cut strips of that dough and the bagel makers will roll a ring around their hand, give it a twist, dip it in sesame seeds, put it in, or put it in a boiling sort of honey water, dip it in sesame seeds and cook it in a wood fired oven. And those bagels taste incredible. It tastes nothing like, any other bagel, certainly no bagel that a machine can make, 
or, or, or attempts to make, right? And it's an antiquated, older, slower, I guess, more expensive process because it requires more label, labor. And yet it is undeniably better and tastier and memorable. So that one of the biggest tourist attractions in Montreal is St. Vieter Bakery or um, Fairmont Bagel. Okay. So Andrew, for the love of God, in the next couple of days, get out of your house. You can listen to a podcast if you want, or listen to music and walk to one of those two bakeries and get some bagels, but watch how they make those bagels. All right. Um, but that's, now that I think about it, that actually thinks might provide a neat seg to my next point. And that, like you mentioned that like making bagels by hand, like it's, it's a lot more worthwhile despite the fact that it might cost more. But like that just raises the question of when it comes to a shift uh, to a more analog future where we're doing a lot of these things by hand or in person or having a lot more of that human connection, do you think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of the time that would be more expensive than the digital variant since the digital variant is often the product of like advancements in technology that would otherwise make things cheaper? Of course, but when you look at the economy and you look at business, you look at how to make money in a world where the cost of production is often flattened by the availability of software and so on, what what differentiates you? It's the value you can add. And so the value people are going to be able to add now, especially in an era when AI tools are ubiquitous and free and probably cost nothing and you know you can use whatever stable diffusion to make art and I can make stable diffusion to, to make art. The differentiator increasingly is going to be the human analog physical things, right? That's where the value is going to be. Oh, you want something that I, that someone actually looks over and makes and has a hand in that's going to cost you more because there's a value to that. Yeah. It's like a, like a, like a tangible value that um, is a lot harder to do with like similar processes that are sort of relying on code. Um, yeah. Yeah. You want, um, you know, you want uh, something made in a machine. Fine. It'll, it's gonna, you know, it'll cost gonna, you less, but, yeah. the, but it's maybe the quality will be the same in an objective basis, but there's not a story behind it. There's a different value behind it. Yeah. But I guess the the part where he said, like, maybe the quality will be the same, even if there's not a story, um, maybe that means that a lot of the the human elements are going to gradually go away if you can't um, sell to people like an increase in quality. Um, but or 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 what differentiates it? Right. If it's a if it's the equivalent of something a computer or a machine could do. If you're making stuff that had doesn't have sort of a characteristic differentiator, if it's a bland bagel that might as well be made by a machine, then what's yeah. the difference? Why then wouldn't I get one that's made by the machine? Yeah, then it's perfect competition and not mon monopolistic competition. Exactly. And so when we look at you know another area that I've I've written about both in the book and and in previous books, you know bookstores, right? Everyone's like, well, Amazon's gonna, you know, this is it. No one's gonna have bookstores anymore. And yet, people have not only held on to independent bookstores, but that business has grown tremendously over the past decade and a half. Um, as people have opened up all sorts of you know fabulous, interesting independent bookstores that are totally different than Amazon, that are far more expensive to buy a book at, but actually serve their communities in different ways because they're not trying to be 
this one big place that everybody goes to to get every book. They're they're going for that specialized, individualized thing that ultimately appeals to people not in this quantifiable, logical way, right? They're not like, I need to buy a book. It costs $14.95 here, but $22 there. I'm going to buy the $14.95 one. It appeals to them of like, oh, I'm walking on the street and there's this cool store. Oh my gosh, there's a bookstore. I didn't see this here. I'm going to go in. I'm going to check it out. I'm going to walk around. The people are nice. The music's nice. Oh, look at this display. Oh my gosh, I always wanted to read this. Do you have something like this? Oh, if you like this, you'll like this. That is an unquantifiable, illogical human experience. And the desire for that doesn't go away the more technology we make. Yeah. Okay. I guess uh, final question. Um, so when it comes to an ideal society, obviously, none of us have all the answers about what would be done better digitally or what would be done better in person. But I guess uh, when it comes to the quest to make whatever the ideal society is, like, what solutions do you think society should take? Do you think this is like people need to be more in person and more human, like on an individual level in terms of the individual day-to-day decisions that they make? Or do you think people need to be human in terms of like, we need to enact like legislation that would curb the advancement of certain like technological growth or the prevalence of it? I think what we need to do is be more critical and engage in critical thinking around advanced technologies and digital technologies um, in a very sort of overt way that we haven't been before, right? We've been pursuing these technologies as though uh, creating them as the end goal in itself. And we haven't, you know, built in any sort of critical thinking around it, whether it's in education, whether it's in businesses or government about what benefit this gives us, what drawbacks there might be, and how do we shape what we're doing around that? Um, And I think if we could do that, then whatever technology comes along, um, we'll at least have a more thoughtful way of approaching it. Doesn't mean we'll get it right even a portion of the time. But um, that that's kind of all I can ask for, I think. Yeah. So it's it's not like individuals need to like make certain decisions and it's not like we need to pass laws. It's more that we need to change some of the implicit societal norms. I I think, I mean, I think there's probably a case for, for laws in certain, certain areas, right. Um, in terms of, you know, privacy, in terms of, um, uh, you know, you know, education, right. So there's, there's, you know, areas now that are, that are, banning phones and and technology time in schools as a policy of that school right or policy of a school board because they see the data they look at the data and they see that oh the more we have these things in schools the worse people are doing in the school and it's bringing in all sorts of other things like uh, bullying and violence and and misinformation and so on so like actually we need to guard this space or 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 balance this out right and that again is that critical thinking it's 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 judging what's being done with the technology it's judging its use and um and looking at that and making decision based on that and i think that's that is something that we have to do at an individual level in our own households um in in places like schools in bigger institutions like communities or companies right just you know for for so long we've just said oh what's the new technology okay that's the thing we have to we have to move to this we got to be all in on this we got to invest in this we don't want to fall behind versus stopping and taking a breath and saying is this something we want 
how do we want to use this? How are we going to make sure that we're doing this in a way that doesn't detract from, from the things that we like or love or do well? David Sachs, thank you so much for taking the time to come onto the podcast. It was a pleasure. Andrew, it was my pleasure. I, I really do hope you get outside and, and go for that walk. Otherwise, I've failed in all my human endeavors. Thank you for listening. If you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.